Scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. Luke, chapter 9. At verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. As I said, I'm and David Buving, I'm the youth and worship pastor here, and I get to fill in for Jeff this Sunday. Uh, I'm super thankful to have the opportunity to continue in this series that he uh, started for us last week, The Disciple-Making Church. I think it's going to be a really important conversation for us as a church. Uh, you know, if one of the last things, or the last thing that Jesus said was go and make disciples, then we probably need to be pretty clear on what that looks like in our lives. So I hope, I hope this plays an important role for you in your life as well. And I hope you're part of a growth group or some other collection of people that you can talk about this with. Because as we're going to talk about a little bit later, if all you're doing is listening and moving on with your life, then this is of no value. I was encouraged by our growth group uh, this last Tuesday seeing how many people in our group had examples that they were able to give of times that they had been discipled or that they were discipling others. Um, that, was, that was really cool. Today, we're going to move on to the second question, which is, what is a disciple? We're going to talk about, you know, what do disciple and discipleship mean? How does being a disciple relate to being a Christian? When we say disciple, are we referring to one of the 12 men who lived and walked with Jesus? Or how about this? Can you be a Christian and not be a disciple? I think sometimes we view Christian and disciple as kind of like two different classes of followers of Jesus. At the end of my time in high school, I, I very distinctly remember one football game that I went to. The offense for the Argonaut High School from the small town of Jackson, California, they were struggling, and so they had punted several times that night. Okay, if you don't know anything about football, the only detail you need to know is when a team punts the ball, the whole goal is to make it go really far so the other team has farther to come back. That night is burned in my memory because on two separate times, the punter punted for negative yardage. To be clear, the punts were not blocked. He went up and he kicked with all of his might and the ball went directly to his left and out of bounds. Two separate times. Both of them, he would have been better off just handing the ball to the other team and going, here you go, do whatever you want. <laughs> you fast forward to 2021, week five, the Seattle Seahawks facing off against the LA Rams. The Seahawks go to punt the ball, and as Michael Dixon punts, 
His punt is blocked. The ball is bouncing. He grabs it out of the air, starts running with it, and then kicks it again. And it goes for one of the longest punts of the season. And apparently that's a legal play. I think this is a good picture maybe of how some of us feel in this kind of comparison of discipleship, disciple, or Christian. Like maybe when it comes to your faith, you feel a little bit more like that high school punter than you do uh, Michael Dixon, the Seahawks punter. Like you're trying, but it doesn't seem to be working. Or, Or maybe you're not really trying. You're content to just call yourself a Christian. The idea of being a disciple seems a little bit radical to you. But the reality is, just as both players in my story were punters, regardless of their success, if you're truly a follower of Jesus, you're his disciple, regardless of your success. Which this is great, because it reminds us again that our place in Jesus' plan is not based on the skills that we have. But it's also a reminder that unless you're truly transformed by his spirit, you're not a Christian. Caitlin has to remind me that no matter how many times I say we as I talk about the 49ers, I am not part of the team. (laughs) Watching the game doesn't make me a member of the team. But the reality is just because you sit in a pew or a chair on Sunday morning does not make you a disciple. It's all about having a heart that has been transformed by God's Spirit. Hopefully you've got your worship folders in front of you, um, because this is where we're going to start. This is our first point this, point this morning. To be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus. This is the first thing we have to be clear on. Um, we're not in the process of setting up two different categories of followers of Jesus, Christian, and then for the really serious ones, you can be a disciple. No, to be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus. Can't separate these two ideas And the reality is actually in the New Testament, disciple is the primary word that is used. The word Christian only appears in your Bible about three times. Disciple is how a follower of Jesus is described. One of the reasons I think we tend to separate out these ideas is because we recognize the significance of what it means to be a disciple. We look at verses like Luke 14.33 So, therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That call discipleship is pretty significant. (laughs) Renounce all he has? Renounce everything? And so we start to ask, like, maybe is there some, like, a simpler entry point, right? Like, is there some, some easier approach that we can take? But this isn't the case. Uh, Look at verse 23 that Bob just read for us in Luke chapter 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If anyone would come after me. So if you desire to know and trust Jesus, there is a totality to his call upon your life. It's not something that can be compartmentalized. And Jesus actually spoke about what's going to happen to people who try to hold on to being a Christian without being a disciple, though he doesn't use exactly those words. 
in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, he says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We have to get this clear. People's lives are on the line. We can't be fooled into thinking that simply saying a prayer and then just moving on with the rest of our life is really what we've been called to. You can't be a Christian and not be a disciple. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. And I I so appreciate how Jeff outlined this for us last week towards the end of his sermon. Church attendance, Bible study attendance, a moral life, that is not what makes you a Christian. Important facets of the Christian life, yes. Very valuable things, all of them. But what defines you as a Christian is someone who has been radically transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The language of the Bible is never that of a nice moral life. Let's look at Colossians 1 again as Jeff led us to last week. Speaking here, he says, He has delivered us from the, king, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. To be a disciple means to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Nothing short of that radical transformation will save you. That being said, let's, let's look at what, what it actually means to be a disciple then. Point two on your outlines is this. To be a disciple means to be an apprentice of Jesus. The word disciple literally means learner. To be a disciple is to be a learner of someone. In this case, in the church, when we say disciple, we mean a learner of Jesus. Jesus says it uh, really well, I think, in John 8, 31. So he said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide, if you hold tight to the words that Jesus has spoken, to his teachings, to his life, that is what, according to Jesus, reveals that you're his disciple. We have to be careful here. Jesus is not simply calling us to to memorize, to collect information while ignoring what his words actually say. Clearly, the point of Jesus' statement is that we would dwell upon his words and allow them to transform us. James, uh, in the book of James, chapter 1, 22, James says this, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and then goes away at once, forgetting what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed 
in his doing. We can't simply read the words of Jesus, study them, and then move on with our life. Jesus says, if you're like that, or sorry, James says here, if you're like that, you're like someone who gets up in the morning, you see that your hair is a mess, you've got something going on with your face, and you're like, whatever, and you walk on, move on with your day. And we've all had days we do that, but, well, maybe, maybe you haven't. I've had days when I do that. But that, if that's the pattern, like, why have a mirror? Just get rid of the mirror. That's a bad idea. The same is true of God's word. If all you're doing is storing up information and not acting on it, get rid of the mirror. Like, that's not good for you. We're called to act. I think this is, a, it's, a, it's a real struggle, especially in um, evangelicalism in America today. We, we love to study. We have a hard time with acting. We love to have Bible studies, but if, if at that Bible study somebody calls us out on some sin in our life, we're really quick to justify our sin, to explain why they're wrong, and then to talk bad about them when they're not there. I know this is true because I struggle with it myself. The reason that I use the word apprentice here in this, this point is because I think it helps us move away from kind of a one-dimensional vision of learning. An apprentice learns by spending day after day with his mentor, watching what he does, learning from his example. Consider, for example, an electrician's apprentice. Can you imagine the apprentice following his mentor around every day for years, watching, seeing how his mentor does these different things, learning all the codes that he has to follow, understanding the dangers involved, what to do, what not to do, when it's okay to take a risk, when it's not. But year after year, he refuses to actually do anything with it. That wouldn't be an apprentice. That would be a spectator, right? To simply listen to Jesus and not act in the same way. It's being a spectator, not a disciple. And just like an apprentice learns from his mentor's teaching, but also by watching what his mentor does, so with Jesus we learn in multiple ways. Learning Jesus is far more than simply learning about Jesus. Being a disciple means looking at the way that Jesus lived his life and adjusting our lives likewise. How did he interact with people? Different people. What patterns do you see in Jesus' life? How does he respond to suffering, both his own and other people's suffering? Being a learner of Jesus, an apprentice, is more than simply learning about Jesus. It's to live with Jesus, to abide in his word, to watch what he does, and to model our lives after him. And I think this is really only the logical response, too. If we really believe that Jesus is who he said he is, then he is the purest, most perfect man. It would be silly to not try to learn from his example, right? That's just foolishness. And if we truly believe that he saved us, then it would be hypocritical not to act upon what he said. And yet all of us come to Jesus with baggage, we all have ideas we've learned that don't match what Jesus has said is true or what values Jesus has. And this is where I think discipleship gets difficult. 
The reality is this. To learn Jesus, we must actively unlearn what the world has taught us. We must actively unlearn what the world has taught us. To learn Jesus, to, to apprentice him, is going to require letting go of ideas that are important to us. I believe most of the division that happens in the church comes from an unwillingness to do that. Learning Jesus is so different than learning in school. For the most part, we start school without any clear knowledge of mathematics or the rules for English and spelling. When you start to learn math in kindergarten, you don't already have preformed ideas of how numbers should relate to each other, right? In some ways, you're a blank slate. But all of us come to Jesus with preformed ideas about the things that he teaches on. Even young children have clear beliefs about what's most important to them, what's right and wrong. They, they might not be able to articulate it, but they feel it. And if you've hung around children, you know this to be true, right? It comes out of them. What they care about comes out of them. We all already have answers to the big questions that Jesus is trying to speak into. And all week long, we're hearing different ideas about what's important, different ideas about how we treat other people, about what's truth, about what is right and wrong. All week, we get that. Can you imagine how hard it would be for a teacher to teach someone their multiplication tables if all week long the parents were teaching them the wrong answers? Right? That would be horrible. And yet, in a lot of ways, that's what's going on. All week long, we are pounded with messages that are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if we're not on guard, and we're just soaking these, those things up, they're going to kill us. Paul states this idea poignantly in Romans 12, verse 2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I think the first mistake when we make when we hear that is to just go, okay, got it, that makes sense, next thing. Like, that's probably the biggest battle. You don't get to move on from that one. That's going to be happening day after day. The reality is this is ongoing for all of life. And if you aren't willing to let the Bible challenge you on these things, then you're creating strongholds for Satan to work in and through. We're so good at opening our Bibles, reading what God has said, and then explaining how it fits perfectly with what we believe already. So my question is, are you willing to open your Bible and allow it to change you? Are you willing to let the words of Jesus challenge your political views? Are you willing to let the words of Jesus challenge how you interact with your money? How about how you interact with other people? How you act in relationships? All of us have multiple identities, things that Things that make us who we are, that are not bad in and of themselves, but they all pose a danger when they're put on the same level 
as who we are in Jesus. Identities like, I'm an American, I'm a man or a woman. Maybe it's what college I went to or the fact that I didn't go to a college. Political party I'm associated with, whatever industry I work in, the type of people that I hang out with, right? Like, all these define us, make us, make up who we are. They make us think certain ways about certain things. Are you willing to sacrifice those identities to Jesus? Can you honestly say, if in learning Jesus I find something that he says or does that is in conflict with one of my core identities, Jesus wins, that identity needs to die. Until that happens, maturity won't come in individuals and we won't see unity in the church. As long as other identities get to hold equal significance to the identity of being a blood-bought child of God, we won't truly mature or be united. I read a quote several years back that, that struck me. It said something to the effect of, when you open your Bibles and you find something that offends you, it's you that needs to change, not your Bible. <laughs> and I would quickly add to that, be really careful not to twist what it said so that you're comfortable. We're way too good at explaining away the challenges by forcing them to fit into our boxes. Jesus is clear. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If learning Jesus isn't mess messing with your pre-existing categories, then I don't think you're taking him seriously. To learn Jesus is going to require a lot of unlearning as well. And that's a painful process. None of us want to let go of our ideas. But there's a paradox here that I think is really beautiful, and that's this. There is true freedom that comes from submitting to Jesus' authority. I really enjoy watching shows about people who live off the grid in the middle of nowhere, you know, living off the land, hunting things, chopping their own wood, like to live vicariously through them. Over the last few months, I've been watching a show called Life Below Zero about people who live in the Alaskan wilderness. And as I've watched it, I've seen a really clear ideology come through. These people are interviewed, and time and time again, it's the same story. I live here because I don't want people to tell me what to do. I don't want people to tell me what's right and wrong. I don't want tell people to tell me how to use my time. I get to define those things. And I think we can all relate to that on some level. That's our default reaction, right? But to be a disciple means we allow Jesus, his word, the people, even the people he's placed into our life to speak into how we should live. And while letting go of our ultimate authority is scary, it's a freeing process. You weren't designed to be God. Your mind is not built to hold all authority. There's a reason why more money more freedom, more whatever has not produced more happiness here in America. 
It's this. We make terrible gods. The more we try to be our own God, the more miserable we are. And we might have moments of like excitement surrounding that, but the more we cling to our authority, the more miserable we are. There's real freedom that comes from submitting to Jesus' authority. Just this last week, I had a, a situation that I was speaking with an elder about and asking how to deal with some things, and he made a few suggestions, and then he also said one thing that I may not do. Okay. I had two options in that moment. I could either respond in frustration that my options were limited or celebrate that God had given someone to guide me. And in that time, I can thankfully say I chose the second. It was wonderful. I moved on with my day, and it was incredibly freeing. But I've certainly chosen times where I've fought for my freedom. No, you don't get to tell me what to do. We all struggle with this. There's freedom in submitting to Jesus' authority. I love how the message paraphrase puts the, the iconic verse that when Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. This is how the message translates it. Are you tired? Worn out? Burnt out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And that's an invitation that I want to take. When we embrace Jesus' way of life and his teachings, allowing him to speak authoritatively into our lives, then we should start to look more like him too. And like Jesus, our lives should be marked by peace, unity, and love. Jesus knew what his mission was. We've been studying the book of John in youth group, and I've been struck by how many times Jesus says something to the effect of, I'm not doing my own work. I'm doing what the Father sent me to do. Jesus lived a life of peace. Not an easy life. He faced conflict often. Um, he tells his followers that he has no place to lay his head. His followers are far from helpful most of the time. He's often verbally attacked. But when you watch the Gospels unfold, there's this clear picture of peace. He's very active, yet he's never rushing around. He does things as the fathers called him to. He is often yelled at, threatened, and yet he's never caught off guard and he never like gives in to the name calling. He lives at peace. And the life of a disciple is to be a life of peace. It's an invitation into a life of peace. Not an easy life. In fact, Jesus says it's going to be a hard life, but easy and peaceful are not the same. In many ways, I'd say our world right now is um, most clearly defined by an easy life that is not peaceful. Jesus invites you into a peaceful life that is not easy. 
He's given us a a mission. It's clear. He's given us authority, spoken authority over us, told us what our life is to look like. He calls us to live in humility just as he did, to love those around us just like he did, to, to live, strive for unity with other people just as he did. The central message of the letters at the back of your Bible is that we would live a life of love and unity. I don't think I realized that until like five years ago. I don't know how I missed that for most of my time reading my Bible. But the primary call of those letters is a life of love and unity. That's what Paul and the other apostles are constantly calling followers of Jesus to do. Love each other well. Do everything you can to be united with each other, to live at peace with each other. So if our life as Christians isn't marked by love and unity, then we're not living out our call to discipleship. It's an area where we can grow. And this message, this call to action, isn't intended only for young people. It's for everyone. Point three is this. To be a disciple means lifelong growing in maturity towards the likeness of Jesus. I had a professor at Multnomah who who said, I'd much rather work with someone who describes themselves as a maturing Christian than a mature Christian. While we're all justified the instant that we are saved, the process of transformation takes a lifetime and it will not be completed until we see Jesus face to face in heaven. And so we don't expect perfection in this lifetime, but we don't ever accept defeat. Our apprenticeship for Jesus isn't for a fixed set of years. Uh, We don't retire from being a disciple. Take a look at this slide. We're going to add one more detail, a slide that Jeff used last week to kind of describe this grand plan that God has to take people from darkness to light through the rescuing work of Jesus to transform them and to center them around the throne of Jesus where he will be glorified. And this week we add just one little detail. Once you've been rescued, your entire life is marked by growth. We grow. One of the things I'm most thankful for in my life is the example that my parents have given me of this. I'm not going to reveal anyone's age here, but let's just say it's safe to say they are definitely, distinctly in the retired category. Yet, they've been faithful for as long as I've been alive to continually grow, continually move towards Jesus. One of the church's best assets is people who've experienced a lot of life and are still in the trenches. People who, though retired, continue to grow in their faith and at the same time pour into the next generation. As a youngish person, let me just say this, we need you. Like, we really, really need you. We need you to cling to Jesus and pour the love that he's given you on us. In our growth group this week, we talked, and of the people, uh, room was filled with 30, 40-year-olds, I think, 
And all the examples of discipleship that they had was people who were much older than them. People who poured into them. We need you to be pouring into our lives. But in order for you to do that well, you must be rooted in Jesus. Because the reality is we don't need more of what the world already has to offer. There's plenty of avenues to get that. We don't need political rhetoric or cliches. We need Jesus. So my request for those of you who are retired or moving in that direction is will you come alongside us young people? Will you show us Jesus? Being a disciple isn't something that's meant to be done alone or even something that can be done alone. Spiritual growth requires other people. And there's two sides to this. The first is this. The greatest commandment according to Jesus is love God and love people, right? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And it's pretty hard to love people if you don't interact with people. I say that as an introvert, so hear me out. Uh, the way we interact with others might be different for each of us, different quantities of people, different settings, but all of us are called to interact with others, to love others. If your idea of being a disciple is hiding in your room with your Bible, then you're missing something. In addition, in addition to this, I think if it's often around other people that are idols get found out. <laughs> Most of us pre feel pretty selfless until we get married and someone messes up our image of ourselves. <laughs> and then we have kids and it's wrecked even worse, right? And marriage and kids are wonderful, but being around other people constantly reveals the things that we thought were no big deal that maybe are a big deal. And maybe for you, you aren't married I still suspect you've experienced this because I've seen it with teenagers at camp. They go to camp, best friends at the beginning of the week, wonderful. By the end of the week, they won't talk to each other, right? Like, when we are around other people and we let people in, all of a sudden, our fake selflessness gets found out. People help reveal these areas of sin, these blind spots, they provide us a place to love. But the second part of it is that people play an important role in guiding us. To be a disciple of Jesus means that we allow the people of Jesus to speak into our life. We invite people to speak into our lives. We don't stand off. Our blind spots and our idols are revealed as we do this. It's painful, but a good process. Like just a little side note here. Okay, this isn't in the notes, so it's for free. Okay, so <laughs> as a preacher, my tendency when we talk about sin is to be like, you guys have to stop. But the reality is, like, the good news of the gospel is you've been set free from your sin. This isn't like a punishment that you have to let go of your sin. Your sin is killing you. Like, can we celebrate that Jesus has freed us from our sin? It's not something we should be hanging on to. Yeah, thank you. Like, that is, it's a good thing. Let go. Let it die because it's killing you. Okay. <laughs> we, we need to invite other people in because they can help us in that process. 
And when we invite people to speak into our lives, then, then also the lies that we've believed about ourselves get found out, right? Most of us have secrets that we've blown up to be way huge. The reality is Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. You are free. So, have you invited a younger disciple to walk beside you? This is, this is the model that Jesus showed us as he lived together with his disciples. And then Paul speaks about it again at the end of, um, I think, 1 Corinthians 11. He's talking about this call to live a life that's glorifying to God, and he ends it by saying this, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. As I live as an apprentice of Jesus, apprentice me, I'll show you what it looks like. We need more relationships like this in the church. One of our growth group questions this week is, who has permission to speak into your life, even into the difficult things? That's a tough question, so start thinking about it. But I really hope you have an answer, and not one you made up because I told you the question ahead of time. I hope you have a real answer that there is someone or a few people that are able to speak into every area of your life. And if you don't, then find someone. We can't live the Christian life without it. The good news is that Jesus left us together. Like, we're a group. This is good. We aren't random people who show up to sit next to each other. We've been put together intentionally by Jesus. Jesus has placed each one of us here in his church. The church is God's primary tool in discipleship. We're in this together. We're Jesus' body here on earth can't get much more close than describing us as literally different body parts. That's what the Bible does, right? Like, we're in this together. And when I say church, I'm definitely not referring to the building. And even in this case, I'm not talking about the Sunday gathering, although I think that's a really important tool in discipleship. But I'm just saying, look at the people next to you. This is the church. This is who Jesus left you with. These are disciples of Jesus, Don't run away when it gets hard. I'm going to do something that might fail miserably and freaks me out as an introvert, but I'm going to ask you to say something to your neighbor. When pastors do this, I don't like it, but as I was going this week, I was like, it just feels like we need to do this. So we're going to do it. I want you to look at your neighbor and say this. I love you, I am for you, and I want to see the image of Christ in you. Good job, guys. You did better than I would have done. Yeah, I didn't have to do it. I only did this because I was up here. I didn't have to do it, so. Oh, man. We're in this together. Let's, let's do this. I, I hope you are excited. The more I worked on this, the more excited I got about doing this with, with you, being a disciple of Jesus alongside each one of you. Well, let's talk about a few roadblocks, reservations, a few things that maybe you have some questions or some hang-ups. The first one is this. Maybe as I talk about that relationship, you say, how do you even start that kind of discipling relationship? And that's a fair question. So even as I describe this answer, know that it is hard. It, it takes work, and it takes putting yourself out there. 
But I would say start with this. Find someone that you trust and invite them in. Um, it's much easier for you to invite someone into your life than for you to try to, for others to try to push their way into your life, right? So, so invite someone in. Find someone you trust. And if you don't, if you're like, I, I don't know anybody at church well enough, like then start spending time with people. Figure something out. Go, join a growth group. Take people out to coffee. Coffee is a great place to start. Find someone you trust. Look at them. Say, I see this in you. Whatever it is. What, what is it that makes you excited about learning from them? I see this in you. Will you walk with me as I become a learner of Christ? Um, you're going to be hearing about something in the next few weeks, months called DNA groups. This is a great opportunity. Something like that will be good. I'll let somebody else share about it, though, because it's not my thing. So... Be on the lookout. DNA groups. It's going to be good. If you're in that, if you, if you have a desire to, to disciple someone else, you see someone and you're like, I think that I could pour into their life. I'm willing to give them my time. I encourage you to start just by asking if you can pray for them. Invite them into your home. And if they have kids, invite their kids too. And make it a situation where n- nobody's going to panic if something gets broken. Spend time together with this person. And if it seems fitting, then tell them, I'd, I'd really like to pour into your life. I'd like to love you and care for you. How can I do that? Build these relationships. Okay, second roadblock is this. How can I identify what I need to unlearn? You're going to sense a theme here. Be around people. Especially those who love Jesus and don't agree with you on everything. Read your Bible with someone who has different political or social views than you do and keep each other honest to not twist God's word to fit with what you already think. When you read your Bible on your own, pray that the Spirit would illuminate your mind as you read. And then, this is, this is a big one, but just be willing to kill those idols. Be willing that when those idols in our life are revealed, that sin in our life is revealed, you're willing to kill it. You're willing to let go. We've got to stop protecting the sin that's killing us. Last one's this. Maybe you're just like, slow down. I'm not sure I'm ready to take that on, right? Like that just sounds like a lot. The good news is here is salvation is not wrapped up in your success. You are saved by grace alone. But the result of the Holy Spirit transforming you is that you will have a desire to grow in maturity towards Jesus. And maybe, maybe, maybe you're overwhelmed. Maybe life has beaten you down and you're like, yeah, but I I just, I can't anymore. Pray that the Spirit would work in you. Talk to a brother or sister in Christ. Don't go through that alone. If you feel exhausted in your faith, the worst possible thing you can do is try to get yourself by yourself and just tough it out. Let people in. It's an invitation to freedom, to life. I'm going to read that verse again in the message from Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Jesus says, Are you tired, worn out, burnt out? out on religion. Come to me, 
Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. The call to discipleship is this paradox of death to self and abundance of life in Jesus. Jesus has walked before us. He's lived the life that he called us to. As we move towards communion, will you turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. We're on the winning team here. We serve the king of the universe. He's our example and our savior. We're reminded as we come to this table that salvation is not by works so that no one may boast. You are saved by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. His body was broken so that you would be made whole. His blood poured out for the cleansing of your sins. We come to this table to remember what he has done. We come to this table to remember the union that we have with him. And as we leave this table, let us do it as a people with a renewed passion for the name of Jesus. As the bread and the juice come around, serve each other. Just as Jesus served his disciples, I'm going to ask that you take the dish, pass it to the person next to you, and then allow them to hold it back, serving you as you take the elements for yourself. Um, It's not only really practical, but it is a picture of serving each other. a moment of silent confession before we pass these elements. And we know that Father, you are faithful 
to forgive every sin that we bring before you. Amen. That bread and juice that you hold in your hands is representative of the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Will you stand with me if you're able? In the same way, also, he took the cup. After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 